Today we finish 1 John chapter 1, Restoring Fellowship, verses 8 through 10. Last time we were together, we talked about the path to joy. Fullness of joy comes from God as we walk in fellowship with God and man. Joy being that abiding contentment and confidence that comes from God in the midst of our circumstances, regardless of what those may be, rooted in what we know of God and then, of course, in this fellowship with God that comes from walking in the Spirit or from abiding in Christ. If we don't have joy, we know that there's something wrong in our fellowship, either with God or with man. Fellowship with God and man comes from walking in the light. So if I'm not walking in the light, then I am not in fellowship and I certainly won't have that fullness of joy. So then all I need to do is walk in the light, right? Which means all I need to do is not sin. Simple. In theory, right? Simple. Yes, if I am not sinning, then I am walking in the light, which means I am in fellowship with God and man, and the Spirit of God will produce in me joy. And that is sound doctrine in its proper place. But we stand at a doctrinal crossroads now where there is a tremendous amount of divergent teaching within the church. And this is, in fact, why I believe, in part, John wrote this very epistle. Because at that time, they were also standing at a crossroads where there was divergent teaching within the church on this very issue of sin. And what sin means to the believer, for the believer, how we go about not sinning, to what extent can we go about not sinning. And I believe this is to some extent, an error-correcting epistle unto those who were being taught various possible unsound doctrines. And I think you'll see this particularly as we get into chapter 2, and we'll talk about it over the course of, uh, of, of several weeks to be sure. So think through me. So think, think through this with me. Just stop sinning. I don't sin. I'm walking in fellowship. I'm walking in fellowship With God, I'm walking in fellowship with man. Thus, I am abiding in Christ. Thus, the fruit of the Spirit is being produced in me. One of those is joy. I have fullness of joy. Well, Romans chapter 6 says this, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin." Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died once, unto sin once, excuse me, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. So consider what we've just read. Paul says here in no uncertain terms that in the life of the believer, sin has no more power. 
And depending on my interpretive framework for this idea, it could easily lead me to preach that this means that at the moment of salvation, the believer has been freed from sin and so sins no longer. And I could take this passage and I could make a very convincing argument for the idea that when you accepted Christ, you were given the Spirit of God, that you sin no longer. And if you find yourself still sinning, then you need to figure out why it is that you did not actually accept Christ to begin with. And if I were to preach that, every person who seeks to submit themselves to my teaching in this manner would live in a tremendous tension within their lives because no one person in this room no longer sins. No matter how long you've been a believer, no matter how much has changed in your life since that day, no one in this room is day by day sinless. And what, we, what would eventually happen if I were to preach this and you were to receive this and you were to live with this conviction is... is first it would start with tension, right? There would be the tension of the fact that I am not living up to what pastor says the Bible says. And then you'd start to try. And what would eventually happen is that we would do what all the Pharisees did. We would redefine what sin is. We would set up harsh judgments against those things which we would call sins that others are doing, but that we can get our handle on. And we would explain away the things that we're struggling with so that they're no longer sins so that we could set up this strong difference between those sinners and we righteous and then we would thus pacify our consciences that we are without sin so that we could conform ourselves to our understanding of this idea that the believer doesn't sin we would pacify our consciences that we are without sin while being the most vile and judgmental hypocrites in the region, right? And that's not good, so let's not do that. So then we have this statement from Romans chapter 6 that they that are dead to, right, in Christ are free from sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you. And then the church down the street sees our judgmental hypocrisy and they counter Romans 6, Right? with Romans 7. And so while we're here preaching Romans chapter 6, the church down the street starts to preach Romans 7. And in Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 14, Paul says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do I allow not, for what I would, that, I, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So this church counters with Paul's doctrinal teaching in Romans 7, that though I want to do good, 
I don't do good. With my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. We're all broken people, right? And Jesus came to save broken people. So I'm just going to settle into my brokenness and embrace it. Defining Christianity not as victory over sin, but only rather as victory over the feeling of condemnation for my sin. So that as I live this life buried in the same selfishness and anger and confusion of the world around me, I at least live in the satisfaction of knowing that Jesus looks down with love and forgives all my brokenness because of grace and won't hold it against me on the day of judgment. So that this church in the counteracting to the church who would say we do not sin any longer, so that this other pen, the pendulum swing of this other church becomes nothing more than a bunch of people living in the same sorrow and the same despondence as the world around them, only with Jesus tacked on to appease their conscience in regard to their failings of spiritual fruitlessness. And we don't want to be there either. And perhaps it was a similar scenario that John looked at before he wrote the epistle of 1 John to whomever these people were that he wrote to. Perhaps the tension between this reality of our sinfulness and the promise of victory over sin existed there too. And perhaps that was the controversy at hand when John sat down to pen this epistle. A controversy which has often reared its head in the church, but a tension which also, it doesn't just exist in the church at large. And we've seen movements about these things uh, throughout the generations. If you've ever looked into the Keswick movement, the Keswick movement was a wonderful movement. Uh, many people uh, got right with the Lord and got, got on fire and passionate for the Lord. But many people charged the Keswick movement with that very idea of saying that we could live in sinless perfection. And then the people in the Keswick movement say, no, that's not what we're saying. And there was tension and controversy there. In our own day, we see this as well with a, a free grace type movement where, whereby people are highlighting their brokenness at the expense of God's holiness. And then, of course, the pendulum swings the other way and people uh, double down on holiness as a means by which to respond to those who are preaching grace in an unbalanced manner. And while we see these trends happen throughout history within the church, we also see this possible tension in our own Christian lives. We have the desire to do what's right. At least I hope you do. The doctrinal impetus that compels us to believe that I can and I ought to do what is right, that I do have, have victory in Christ over sin, and yet I also have this tenacious sin nature which is constantly seeking and often succeeding in drawing me back into that which is wrong, in drawing me back to those same old ideas, those same old lies. And so this tension exists. Now, last week we learned that we should expect to live lives of fullness of joy as believers. A fullness of joy found in victory over sin. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. We should expect this. This is what we're supposed to do. And if we want joy, this is what we need to do. So initially, we are led to say that we ought to expect to live these sinless lives. And this is kind of what the verses in 1 John thus far have led us to believe. Okay, walk in the light, don't sin. Great. 
And then you leave here on a Sunday night and you go and you're driving home and someone cuts you off and immediately in your mind you've sinned. In your heart you've sinned, right? Okay, now what? I'm, I'm not supposed to sin and I've sinned. Now what do I do? You wake up the next morning and it's a Monday morning. Your coffee maker broke, so you don't have that. And you've sinned in your heart. Now what do you do? And that's where tonight comes in. So last week we read this. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. God is light and God is no darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with God, we walk in darkness, we are lying to ourselves and we are lying to others because God is light. To walk in fellowship with God is to walk in the light. It is not to walk in the darkness, to live in righteousness and not sin. And then verse 7, as we considered last week, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. So we must walk in the light as he is in the light. And we talked about that phrase, the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us from all sin. We connected that to the concept in Hebrews chapter 10, recognizing that this is not a concept talking about whether or not we are saved or uh, it has nothing to do with gaining or maintaining our salvation, but rather has to do with the manner of fellowship whereby we draw nigh unto the Lord with a pure heart, right? As Hebrews chapter 10 exhorts us to do. Living in the power of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And that brings us to verse 8. John says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So here it is. If we... Now who's the we here? Well, to this point, the we has been differentiated from you. I do encourage you to take careful note of pronouns and tenses when you read and you study the scriptures. The we to this point has been John and those with John. And the you has been the readers unto whom John is writing. So in verse 3, remember, John said this, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He also said in verse 5, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So to this point, John has distinguished between the we of those who have experienced the fullness of joy that is rooted in fellowship with the living Christ and the you of those that John wants to experience this as well. There is no reason for us to deviate from this framework. And in verse Eight, we want to deviate from the framework. It feels like what John is saying here is more generalized. The we now should include John and the people reading, right? That makes sense. That would be the general idea of, of, of we here. But John hasn't changed his context. He still, he, all throughout this, this introductory chapter, he said we and you. And if that context stays in place then John is speaking specifically of himself and those whom he's representing. And this is the first inkling of reason why I believe John is actually talking about teachers and specifically false, warning against false teachers. 
The we here seems to be those that John has been talking about that have heard and seen and looked upon and handled of, the, of, of eternal life. Those who walk in the light and have fellowship with one another. Those who would be lying if they said that they had fellowship with God, but walked in darkness and not the light. Those who would be lying if they said they had no sin. And it's here that, as I said, the possibility presents itself to me that John is speaking of a group of people who are saying all the things that John is saying, if we say this, we, we are liars. He's countering false teaching here. That there were teachers who had said, we have experienced this thing, we know this thing, and we are seeking to pass it on to you. But then they were assuring their listeners that they were in fellowship with God while also walking in darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But he's already distinguished several times in this chapter between we and you. You see where I'm getting at with this? I'm, 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 I, this, is, this, this is potentially a little bit confusing here, so I'm going I'm to belabor the point. In verse 3, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. In verse 5, this is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Not ye, we. Now, it's possible here that John completely changed his context from the we of those who he's saying he represents to the we, to the collective we of, of you and us. But that wouldn't be the most natural way to read this. The most natural way to read this would be, we are writing things, we are saying things, we are representing things, and if we are saying that we have fellowship with God, which is perhaps the means by which we gain credibility with you as teachers, but we are walking in darkness, we are lying. You say, well, pastor, is this really that big of a deal? Well, when you get to chapter 2, John starts warning against antichrists who are among them. When you get to chapter 4, what does John say? Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they have God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There is a great deal of warning about false teaching in this book. And I think that that warning actually begins in chapter 1. I think that that is what we are seeing here. Yes, all of these things apply to us as believers as well. If we walk in darkness, I didn't, I didn't gloss last week's sermon in this idea of false teaching because it would really be here that we begin to see this thing in a, in, in a more fruitful way. Now you say, well, Pastor, verse 9 kind of contradicts this, and I would agree. If you look at verse 9 briefly, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This might lend itself to us saying, no, I think that, that John has, has moved to the collective we here. And I'm, I'm very comfortable with that as well. The collective we. Because it's absolutely true. All of this applies to every believer. And all of this um, would, would be important for the, 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 the readers to understand about themselves as well. So, I'm fine with that. 
However, it is interesting that we see this differentiation, isn't it? And it gives the first glimmers of what we most certainly will see in chapter 2, most certainly will see in chapter 4, which is warnings against false teaching. So that if there were these teachers that were assuring their listeners that they were in fellowship with God but walked in darkness, John says they're lying to you. Don't listen to them. And then if there were these other listeners who were saying that their position in Jesus meant that they no longer sinned anymore, John says they are liars. Don't listen. Don't listen to anyone who is representing the gospel of Jesus Christ who says that they are able to not sin any longer. So then what is the truth? The truth is that the man who is living in eternal life, experiencing fullness of joy, is a man who is walking in the light as God is in the light and the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing him from all sin, so he is not sinning. But this man does not deceive himself into thinking that he has no sin. That he does not sin. Because this is self-deception. And the truth does not reside in the heart of the man who has convinced himself of this thing. So then what does this mean? How can I be both a sinner and walk in the light since sin is darkness and in God is no darkness at all? And if we walk in darkness, we are not in the light. And if we say we have fellowship with him, but walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. And that's where verse 9 comes in. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are called to do what is right, Christian. And the heart of man, the heart of, uh, uh, the heart of a man that is rightly related to God strives to do what is right. 1 John 5 verse 3 tells us this plainly. We'll get there. What does 1 John 5, 3 say? For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. We'll get there. But Christian, you aren't always going to do what's right. But thank God he has made provision for that eventuality. Now, there's actually quite a bit happening in this verse, so let's break it down first with this word confess. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this word confess. The word means to own or acknowledge something to be true. To confess one's sin is to acknowledge that what you have done is in fact sin. To affirm that God is right, that your way has been wrong. And let's settle some misconceptions about the nature of confession together this evening. First, confession is not the same as repentance. Repentance is a turning Away from something, confession is an acknowledgement of something, and these are different concepts. First, let's talk about repentance. The heart of repentance is a heart which has previously been living in a determined action and has since recognized this action, admitted this action to be wrong. And implicit in this idea of repentance is that 
My heart was falsely predisposed to something sinful, whether knowingly or unknowingly. I was doing something wrong by determination until at some point I recognized and relented, recognized that this thing was wrong, relented to the reality that this way of thinking and acting was outside of the light of God's truth. And I realigned my thinking to be consistent with God's thinking. I turned from a thinking that said, this is something that I'm going to do. I want to do that, 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 um, again, whether, whether in ignorance, ignorance, I'm doing it even though I don't know it's wrong or it's wrong, but I'm doing it anyway, to realigning myself with God's thinking and saying this thing is wrong and I do not think this thing is right anymore. I have learned that it's wrong and I'm going in a different direction. Confession is something slightly different. Confession generally takes place after repentance, where I do the thing that I know I shouldn't do. I've already, I'm, already, I'm already on God's wavelength, right? I've already recognized a sin and repented of a sin, recognized a direction and repented. In other words, I agree with God on something, but then I did it anyway, <laughs> right? I stepped outside of what I knew already was right, and I stepped into sin in an area that I've already acknowledged to God that something is wrong. I've already moved to God's side in that thought or action, but then I did it anyway. And this compels me unto confession, where I acknowledge that the way I went was wrong, that God's way is right. I acknowledge that. I appeal to the blood of Jesus Christ as the single source of my righteousness, and I am thus forgiven and cleansed and restored into fellowship. I'm brought back into the light where I stepped willingly out into Darkness, And that's the idea of confession. It is to own or acknowledge something to be true. It is when I say, God, I acknowledge that your way is this way, that I went that way. I acknowledge your way to be the right way. And thus I am brought back into that fellowship. And take note of this from the context. When we use words like forgiveness and cleansing, we often direct our thinking exclusively to that point of salvation because it is at that moment of salvation that I am justified, right? It's at that moment of salvation that I am declared righteous, that the chains of my sin are broken. And we call this being forgiven of our sins. And, and in simplicity, that is fine. That is the moment that we are forgiven of our sins. But what we know doctrinally, and we'll cover very soon in 1 John 2, verse 2, is that on the cross, at the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, he took on himself the sins of the world. He paid for every sin, past, present, and future, that the blood of Jesus Christ was sufficient to cover the sins of the entire world. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. Now, this is not a universalist idea. Not that everyone goes to heaven because Jesus paid for every sin and so no matter what we do in this life and no matter what we think in this life and no matter how we predispose ourselves to God in this life because God has paid for all sin in Jesus and Jesus has forgiven sin, therefore everyone gets to heaven. No. But in a finished work sort of a way whereby provision has been made for all men to be saved. We'll see as we get there next week. He is the propitiation. That word there is a word only used in 1 John, and it means a means of propitiation. Jesus Christ is a means of propitiation for all men, not just for those who are saved, but for anyone who will come unto him. He has made provision for all men to be saved as the sins of all men were paid for on the cross and laid on him by God the Father. 
And what we also know doctrinally is that much of the Bible's context as it relates to forgiveness of sin is the context not of talking about eternal salvation or damnation, but rather the context of fellowship between a believer and God, personal fellowship. And the context of John, of course, to this point, we've, we've hammered it, we've, we've beat that horse well past his dead point, right? The context of this book, it is abundantly clear, is not salvation, it is fellowship. So when John is speaking here, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are not talking about a perpetual getting saved again and again and again, being born again, again and again and again. There's being born and there's being born again. Jesus never said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, again. Jesus didn't say to the Samaritan woman, you must be born again, again. As a matter of fact, the idea of being born again, again doesn't even make any sense. And so that's not what we're talking about here. And as we think through that, we already talked last week about the fact that the born don't become unborn. The born can die, but the born can't become unborn. And so if the born could become unborn, then the idea of could, could the, the born who became unborn become born again? Again? And this just becomes confusion. Of which God is not the author. And of which the Bible does not speak. Much to the contrary here. If we see a situation where we are walking in the light as God is in the light because we are his children and we step out of the light but into darkness so that we are no longer walking in the light and we confess our sin and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It makes, it makes abundant sense and it is scripturally consistent to say that we are thus stepping out of the darkness into which we wandered back into the light. And that is confession and that is the forgiveness of which it is being spoken here. The means as a believer of maintaining fellowship, not never to sin, because though provision is made for such sinlessness through the indwelling Holy Spirit, is it possible, theoretically, for you and I, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, to never sin again? Yes, it is possible. Because the provision has been made, the Spirit of God has been given to us to where if you spent every moment of every day walking in the Spirit, you would never sin again. But is it practical to expect that you will do that? It is not. Which is why we have this wonderful provision of confession and forgiveness. Our means of staying in constant fellowship is not to never, ever, ever sin. Our means of staying in constant fellowship is to walk in the Spirit through obedience, and then when we falter and when we fail, because we will inevitably falter and fail, we immediately acknowledge our sin to the Lord, we realign ourselves with Him, and thus experience the forgiveness that was purchased on the cross as God cleanses us from unrighteousness and restores us unto fellowship. And in this way, you can live in consistent joy. Because when you step out of fellowship and you recognize it, you confess it, and you're brought back into fellowship by a faithful and just God. And a great illustration of this is marriage. This is the one that I like to use when I counsel at the jail. My wife and I are married. Bet you didn't know that. My wife and I are married. When we got married, 
Do you, I do, do you, I do, till death do you part, all that good stuff. At that point, we gave each other rings, and my wife and I were bound into a covenant. And that covenant is the covenant of marriage. We bound ourselves one to another. Now, just because we are bound in this covenant does not mean that we are always in perfect fellowship one with another. I do something wrong, she does something wrong, I say something, she says something, we both say something, and now there is distance between us. Now, at the moment that we do that, at the moment that that happens, at the moment that, 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 that our, our sin nature gets the better of us and we wrong one another, we do not become unmarried. We do not walk away because we got grumpy at each other and, and become immediately unmarried. When it is that whoever is in the wrong decides to humble themselves and right themselves, we do not have to go back to the marriage altar and get married again. There'd be an awful lot of wedding receptions if that were the case. We don't have to do that because we're still married. We didn't become unmarried simply because we fell out of fellowship. Much to the contrary, we stayed married and then when we confess to one another, acknowledge our faults, ask for forgiveness, forgiveness is granted, and there is a reunion of fellowship one with another. The covenant was never broken, and now fellowship is restored, and we are walking one with another again. This is that same idea. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you entered into a covenant relationship with God through Christ. At that moment, as Jesus says in John 10, no man can uh, pluck them out of my Father's hand. And yet that doesn't mean you're always going to be in fellowship. Now, in this case, we have a perfect bridegroom, so he's never going to be the one to offend. But when we walk away, when we step out of fellowship, there will be something between us and our Lord. Until such time as we come and we acknowledge our fault and we confess and he will every time faithfully and justly forgive us, cleanse us, renew that fellowship. We don't have to get resaved. Don't have to go back to the marriage altar. We just step back into fellowship and then there is joy. So we see the difference between confession and repentance, how confession relates itself to the Christian life. One more thing about confession before we move on. One of the things that often rears its head as it relates to the concepts of repentance and confession is the relationship between these things and our emotional state. In other words, can I repent or confess if I don't feel sorry? And I don't know if there's any successful way to me, for, for me to express this, but I'm going to try. Um, my answer is, I have no idea. Because people's emotions are so very different from person to person. Here's what I do know. I know that when I am close to God, I hate my sin. And there's not a time when I sin in which it does not emotionally affect me. This is not always the emotion of sadness, though. Sometimes it's frustration, anger. Frustration at the fact that I did it again. Anger at the, I don't know, the world. <laughs> Me, my, 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 my feet of clay. Um, there's no time where I sin where there's not something emotionally happening. 
But I also know that there are plenty of times in my life where I've wronged someone and I know it and I've approached reconciliation significantly more objectively with very little emotional investment where I've done something wrong and I've realized it's wrong and I've gone up and I've made it right and it's not as if I was torn in two necessarily about what I did. It was simply an objective acknowledgement. Wow, that was wrong. I should not have done that and I'm going to go make that right. Humble determination to right the wrong and restore that fellowship. And I don't know that this is in any way invalid as a form of confession or as a form of repentance to objectively look and say, I was this way, this way I realized is wrong, and I'm going to start going this way. Now that I look back and I look back at my sin and the way that I was going, and again, in me, it wells up legitimate emotions. But that is somewhat depending upon circumstances. Now, some of us are deeply emotional people. And our acknowledgement of wrong will always be an emotional experience. Others of us are not so much emotional people. And our acknowledgement of wrong will be much more matter of fact. I mean, you've seen two guys make up before, right? After a fight. Guy one comes up and he stands next to guy two, right? Doesn't stand in front of guy two. Doesn't look guy two in the eye. Stands next to guy two. Guy, Guy one, guy two. Guy one goes, hey... Guy two goes, hey. Guy one goes, look, man. Guy two goes, look, yeah, I know me too. And guy one and two are are, are good now. It's all good. 100% reconciled. That's weird, but it happens. Now, is this not just as valid, in a sense, as two people bathing each other in tears and platitudes of regret? I don't know. That's why I said I don't know. It works for, works, for, works for some guys. They're best friends after that, right? It's good. Now, we spoke in Genesis last week. Actually, I guess it'll be next week. I wrote this message expecting to preach one this morning that I didn't preach. So we'll speak in Genesis next week in the morning service about the reality that what God is pleased with is a broken and a contrite heart. David writes this in Psalm 51. And this gives implications of emotions, right? The idea of a broken heart, a contrite heart. But in reality, at least externally, it's not always so, right? A submitted and a yielded heart may express itself in many different ways. The question, however, is much more simple. Is the confession or the repentance the brokenness there? If it's there, then on the authority of God's word, it will be accepted. And if it's not there, no matter how much crying I do, no matter how much blubbering, no matter how emotional I make it, if there's no confession, if there's no repentance, if there's no brokenness, then there's no restoration. And God sees this and God knows this. So it would be foolish for me to gauge my genuineness of confession or of repentance or or the genuineness of someone else's expressions of confession or repentance on the basis intrinsically of emotional value. People are different. 
So what God requires is not some particular show, not some particular expression. What he seeks is acknowledgement. And when he has it, he's got it. He's got what he's asked for. And he is both faithful and just to forgive. And this comes back to the finished work of Christ. Why is it that he can be both faithful and just to forgive? It is just that God can forgive me of my sin because Jesus has already paid the debt. He is just. Romans says he is both just and the justifier of them that come to him. Why is that? Because the debt has not been ignored. The debt has been paid. Which means when I come and I confess my sin, I appeal to the blood of Jesus Christ as the means by which I can step back into fellowship and back into light. And the Father says, absolutely, you have that through Jesus Christ. You have the right to be forgiven. And I'm cleansed from all unrighteousness. Knowing that God is not just willing, but eager to forgive those that will come unto him. And this applies to all men, not just to believers. God has made the expression of his love through Jesus. You have received that expression of his love and have been changed from glory to glory. And and I'm, I'm speaking to a specific subset of people, of which oftentimes younger Christians are among them, sometimes Christians who have been um, misguided in years through their own study or through teaching, where we feel as though we have to make uh, copious expressions of confession or of repentance in order for God to, to, to accept us. I, I, I was this way for years because I didn't understand forgiveness, where I would ask God to forgive me, but then I'd say, obviously that's not enough. And then I think through, okay, how long do I have to not do this sin until God has forgiven me of this sin and then I can be right with him? And I'd create arbitrary number of days or arbitrary number of, uh, of hours or whatever it might be where I feel as though if I can go this long without doing this thing, generally it was days or months or whatever it might be, not, not typically hours, um, then, then God will, will, will uh, be able to use me again and God will be able to restore me. And yes, he's forgiven me, but I have to work my way back into favor with him. The Bible doesn't say any of that. He is faithful and just to forgive me. He is faithful and just to restore me. Why? Because Jesus has already taken that. The forgiveness has already been offered, has been extended, and has been paid for. I just need to come and receive it. And then I step back into the light. It doesn't, it's not going to take me a week or two to work myself back into the light. I can step back into the light. I can receive forgiveness of sin. And you say, well, why would God do that for me? How do I know that God loves me that much? He's already made every expression of it. That is what Jesus represents, is it not? Has he not already sent his son to die on the cross for you? Why would he withhold forgiveness because you lied again when he sent his son to die for your sin? What kind of a petty God would do that? Would send his son, what kind of an inconsistent God would do that? To send his son to die on the cross for your sins and then to withhold his favor or his forgiveness when you come and ask for it because you did something again. That's the whole point of Jesus. That's why he's there. How can there be any doubt in your mind of God's willingness to restore you unto fellowship for which he gave his son at the first before you ever asked for anything? So that this is the sum. When we acknowledge our sin to God, affirming that God's way 
is truth and our way was error. God is faithful to cleanse us from that wrong and restore us into fellowship. Take advantage of this, Christian. Cling to this. Love this. Believe this. Do this and be right with him. Confess your sin. Forsake your sin. Get up and follow Christ. Walk in the light as he is in the light. When you step out of that light, recognize you stepped out, confess that sin, jump back into that light with both feet and start running his way again. 10 times a day, 15 times a day, 20 times a day, whatever it takes. And by God's grace, over time, it'll be less. That's the plan, right? As he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ. That's the plan. And there's going to be bumps in the road and you're going to meet that person who just gets under your skin that you can't stand and you can't handle and you have nothing in your toolbox by which to deal with this person. And you're going to fall back into a, 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 a cycle of confession that, that you haven't maybe been in in a little while. It's going to take a lot more time and a lot more effort and God's going to teach you a lot of lessons. But cling to this truth. Because it's a blessed truth. Well, let's look at verse 10 and then we'll put a couple of things in place as we close. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, if we compare this verse to verse 8, we might be tempted to think that John is more or less repeating himself, but he isn't. The language here actually reflects two very different ideas. The first idea is the man who says as a believer that he has no sin in his life, that he is not sinning. That he has completely conquered sin this side of eternity. And the Bible says this man is self-deceived. He is living in a false state of confidence rooted in the blindness to his own flaws and weaknesses. The second man is different. This man says he has not sinned. This is the idea that he has never sinned. And this man does not just deceive himself. This man makes God a liar. Because God has declared that all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, once again, when I read this verse, this is one of the things that brings me back to the idea of, I think there was some false teaching going on in it, wherever, it, among whomever John was speaking to. And I think that there was some false teaching because this is a very interesting thing to add here. And I have a feeling that there was some very strange doctrine going around. Something about not sinning after you've been saved, but also something about being born without a sin nature. Maybe the idea that everyone who was born after Jesus Christ because Jesus took Adam's sin on the cross is born without that sin nature. I don't know. I don't know what was going around. John doesn't say what was going around per se. We'll see some things in John 2 uh, about Antichrist and about the, the, the character of that Antichrist. We'll see some things in John 4 about these false prophets who have gone out into the world and these false spirits. I don't exactly know what was going around, but this again lends me to believe that maybe something's happening wherever John is writing and to whomever he's writing. And John is perhaps giving those two standards as a part of that, that, that false teaching. The man who says he is not a sinner, the man who says he's not struggling with sin is self-deceived and he's confused as it relates to doctrine. The man who says he is not a sinner is a blasphemer of the word of God. He is a liar and the word is not in him. 
So then as we come to chapter 2, and John is speaking about those antichrists seeking to seduce the church, it would perhaps uh, be more understandable that John is trying to help these believers orient themselves properly to teaching, discerning what is doctrine which has been uh, uh, muddied by Christian immaturity, which is okay. We're all going to get doctrine that's muddied by Christian immaturity. You're going to have that in your own life, and it's going to work itself out in time through maturity. And what is blatant heresy that stands in full contradiction to the word of God and needs to be rejected outright. And all of this, of course, climaxing in John 4, as I've said, try the spirits, whether they be of God. Okay, so let's put it all together as we close. I told you I was going to do a few more drawings on our drawing from last week. And uh, that's what we see here. God's desire for us is that we would live in a place of fullness of joy. This comes by walking in fellowship with God and man, which is rooted. We will see as we continue in obedience what is called here walking in the light. But this does not mean that I am sinless. Much to the rather, if I say I have no sin, I am self-deceived. If you say you have no sin, you are self-deceived. If you, if you say, well, you know, I can't remember the last time I sinned, you need to start doing a personal inventory of your life. Because there's something that you're missing. But what I can say is this. Even if I can't say I do not sin, even if I can't say I am not a sinner, though ideally I would be able to say that, I can't. I can still say with confidence, I am walking in the light. And that through two things. First, Regular and determined obedience, abiding in Christ, walking in the Spirit, loving God, loving my brother. And second, through quick and consistent confession of my sin when I falter into darkness. By means of these two things, I can maintain fellowship. I can walk consistently, if not constantly, in the light. And thus have that fellowship that brings about fullness of joy. I pray to God. I acknowledge my sin. God restores me to fellowship. I'm back walking in the light. And if I live this way, both in determined obedience and then constant, consistent at least, not constant, consistent confession of sin, then I will be in consistent, not constant, fellowship with God. Not living in the allowance of sin, either because, well, we all sin anyway, so we might as well embrace it, or because, well, I'm forgiven, so it doesn't matter nor living, holding myself up to an unreasonable expectation of sinless living that no man can achieve where I believe that I will be able to purge out every sinful inclination from my life, which is not possible as long as I live in the body of this death. And that day's coming. We talked about it this morning. What if Jesus came today? Oh, I... Doesn't look at, like it at this point, but that'd be a great thing, wouldn't it? Get out of this body of death into our resurrected bodies, moving on into that next, into the kingdom that it is God's, it is the Father's pleasure to give us. But as long as I have my sin nature, sin will still be with me. How can I know then when I'm living in this balance, when I'm right with God? This thing that John and Jesus before him calls eternal life. Once again, because I have fullness of joy. That's the evidence. That's the proof. That's the thing. When I'm there, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus 
Doesn't mean I'm going to be happy in my job. Doesn't mean I'm going to be happy in my relationships. It means I'm happy in Jesus. And when I'm there, I know that I'm walking in the light. This is the great evidence of the properly oriented believer. And take note, this cannot be my evidence of someone else's place and position with God because I can't see their heart. I have no idea, no matter how they act, of whether or not they are living in joy. Person comes in bubbly, doesn't mean they're living in joy. Person comes in stoic, doesn't mean they're not living in joy. This is not an evidence for you to look out at others and judge. That's not what I'm calling you to do this evening. Nudge your brother or sister, hey, are you listening? You need that joy. That's not, that's, that's not what this is about. This evening is about you looking inside, inward, into you with the Spirit of God's help and determine, are you experiencing joy? That is the great goal. The place that John wants every believer, the reason why he wrote this epistle, that through determined obedience, confession of sin, are you in a right relationship with God through Christ and so have joy. And John's desire is that this would help us orient ourselves in life, but also orient ourselves to proper teaching. So that if you are listening to a preacher and he starts talking about being sinless, you don't have to feel bad and wonder if he knows something you don't. That man is not enlightened. That man is deceived, self-deceived. He's not telling the truth. You can know that because we have 1 John chapter 1. Discernment over, regardless of what that man has been saying, you don't have to spend time wondering if he knows something you don't because you have that word of God that says, if a man says he has no sin, he has deceived himself and the word is not in, or any, uh, he, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There we go. Likewise, if a man says he has not sinned, like we see in Catholic doctrine with Mary and the Immaculate Conception, among no doubt any number of other examples we could give, this is not just self-deception. This is not just a liar. This is a person who has made God a liar. And the truth is not in them. The word is not in them. Discernment over. You reject that man on every topic. With the man who is self-deceived, he might have some good things to say about other things. Good, okay? I, I, I can deal with a man who, who, who doesn't quite have it right on certain doctrinal ideas. I can deal with a man who's elevated Romans 6 perhaps a little higher than he's supposed to elevate it. That's, we, we, we can chew that meat and spit out those bones. But if a man says he has not sinned, there's, there's no meat on those bones. Just bury those bones six feet deep and walk away. And may God help us to orient ourselves rightly to these truths. Not feeling guilty that we have not achieved sinless perfection in this life but also not then excusing our sin and so failing to strive for the holiness which is the basis for fellowship with God and fullness of joy. Don't let the idea that we are going to sin and so becoming settled in your sin strip from you the ability to have fullness of joy through obedience. May God help us this evening to live in this manner. Let's close in prayer. 
Father, I pray for God's people. I ask that you would help us to be balanced in this matter. I, um, and I pray that I would have been clear in my, my teaching. I, I know that I am a flawed man, both in teaching ability as well as in understanding. And yet, Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would have taken your word this evening and the concepts surrounding your word and would have uh, approved them into the hearts of God's people in the manner that is needful and right. And I ask specifically for those in our midst, maybe who have been struggling with this idea of confession, with the frustration over their sin. Maybe they feel as though, they have felt as though that, that they can't be a believer because they still sin. I ask that you would comfort their hearts in relation to their own humanity. And for those perhaps who say, well, I don't feel sad enough, so I'm not going to confess my sin. I don't have enough of an emotional response, so I'm not going to go to, to the Lord and confess. I ask that you would help them to um, come to that place where they can acknowledge their sin and be brought back into fellowship, even if maybe they're not in the emotional state that they would expect or desire. I pray for those who have rested under the guilt and the shame of feeling as though it's not enough just to confess. They have to earn their way back and that they would have the faith to rest upon the finished work of Christ and so be released from that guilt and that shame and that frustration, those things that Jesus took on the cross and would not reside under them as they confess their sin and then by faith forsake their sin and walk in the light. And I do pray that finally that we would be a people who walk in the light as you are in the light, that we would have fellowship one with another, fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. May you be pleased with our response this evening, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.